0: Let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Thank you, brothers, for leading us in sound and worship. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us online. Let's give our full attention. This is our act of worship. Thought it is relevant and appropriate to spend this one week back into uh, what we call wisdom, uh, wisdom literature. So we'll give attention to these first 14 verses. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'll read it for us. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. These first eight verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, they're very, very well known. They're cited by singers, authors, thinkers. But please make no mistake, this is far from safe and sweet ivory tower philosophy removed from the realities of life. In eight verses, you have 28 short statements. 14 happen to be positive, and then they're followed by 14 negative statements. If you just do some simple math, 14 positives, 14 negatives, I think the author's point is that life is a zero-sum game, it all ends up to being nothing, zero. In verse 9, the divinely inspired author asks of himself, and he asks of you, all of those who are listening in, what's the point? What's the point to life? What is there to gain from all his toil to be... Quoting in verbatim. Now, perhaps this ongoing pandemic, of course, has raised questions like this like never before. We start wondering about your working career. What's the point? Should I switch? Should I stay? Is this really what life is supposed to be about? Well, you're resonating with chapter two of Ecclesiastes where he says, what does it matter if how skilled or how accomplished Or how renowned you become for your accomplishments in work. You have to pass it on to somebody else and you can't carry any of it with you. What's the gain? What's the point to work? Also in chapter 2 he says, no matter how wisely or morally or self-controlled you live your life. Versus the other person who is wanton, foolish and immoral and just indulging in everything they can. The author turns around and asks you, and he asks himself, what's the point if everything returns to dust? Last but not least, in chapter 2, the author asks of you and asks of himself, he says, I amassed houses and gardens and plants, servants and slaves, silver and gold. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, I kept my heart from no pleasure. He lived a life that billionaires still envy. He said, anything I saw and wanted, I did. But here is his haunting conclusion. Everything he tried or wanted to do, he did. And his haunting conclusion throughout this book, which is full of God's wisdom, is all is disappointing. All of it amounts to zero. Meaningless, meaningless vanity of vanities. So I'm sure a lot of you are very glad that we did not show up in person today. The divine, divinely inspired author asks, What's the point? What's the gain? And he concludes, It's vanity, it's all a waste. Now, why does this book belong in the Bible? Well, one reason for wisdom literature is actually to save you and to save me from having to reach the same conclusion through lifelong personal experience. The reason for wisdom literature is to protect and prevent, save you from lifelong regret, disillusionment, where you find it's all really empty at the end. This book, in other words, is a deconstruction of life apart from God. There are many church folks right now who are deconstructing their Christian faith and Christian life. My heart goes out to you and questions must be asked and answers should come forth. But this book asks, well, if you don't have any faith in God, God is not an absolute. There's nothing objective. There's nothing transcendent. What is life like without God? And this is where he says, all of it, all of it. What's the point? Why should you care? Oh, in one verse he says, as we observed in a very sober way, along with our national consciousness yesterday, 20 years since 9-11, here's what the author would say. Why do you care when and how wars begin or when and how wars cease? I don't mean to sound cold or even cynical about this. I'm just quoting scriptures. Apart from God, why does it really matter when we remember such courage and selflessness and sacrifice and compassion on that day? And all the kinds of shock and awe and terror and horrors that were repercussions from 9-11. Oh, you do know, attendant to that was 20 years of war in a place called Afghanistan that we all as a country, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, mourn How this ended and it continues to create so much turmoil. Oh, back to the author again. Here's what he asks: Why should you care? Why do you care so much? What does it matter? When all of time passes, when all is said and done, for every moment of happiness, it'll be equaled out or canceled out by sorrow and sadness, and dust to dust we return. Now, this would be the case unless we got to verse 11 verse 11 is a surprising radiant turn where he starts to admit god god somehow in some way were it not for god were it not for god's existence were it not for god's work In somehow, some ways, he makes and is making everything beautiful in its time. So what do we do with this? What can we learn? God makes everything beautiful in its time. What can we learn from this? Three things real quick. First is humility. Humility. In verse 11, we just read that. We cannot add anything to it, but God makes everything beautiful in its time. Verse 11 summarizes the first eight verses. And notice these occasions here, again, in the 28 short statements or phrases. These are not occasions which we can plan, control, manipulate. They just kind of happen. And we just have to learn how to deal with it, if you will. We have to learn how to respond to it. We have to learn to live with it. Beginning with the first verse the bookends of life. How much control do we have over that? There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. I was reading last week in the LA Times in the most ambitious, effusive terms. Back in 2018, then-governor-elect Newsom, governor of California, after he won a landslide victory in his speech, he declared this, "'The sun is rising in the west,' And the arc of history is bending in our direction. End quote. Now certainly, as you know me as your pastor, I am not saying that he will or should be recalled and replaced. I am making an observation across all power bases, all public leaders of the hubris involved in making a statement like that. We are bending all of history in our direction no not so verse 11 again god alone uses everyone everything every moment to bend everything in his direction back toward his will back toward his will again in verse 11 at that second half we cannot find out what god has done from the beginning to the end not only does God alone have the sovereign power to bend everything back toward His will, we can't even figure out what He's doing in time. We want to figure out because He has placed eternity in our hearts, but we cannot fathom there is no human being who can fully calculate and comprehend what God is really up to in time. And so you see, part of humility... Humility is that God has assigned appropriate activities and responses to each season or to different times. For example, if you're at a party or a celebration, God has assigned that time to be a time for what? Laughing, feasting, drinking, celebrating. But if you go to someone who is tragically losing their business, tragically gotten a medical report, or you're at a funeral, God has assigned what activity, what emotion to be experienced in that season of time. There's a time to weep, a time to mourn. Now listen, my friends, part of humility is to not switch those activities. It's not to conflate human emotions. Part of humility is accepting that God has assigned certain seasons and times for these things. You shouldn't rush it. You shouldn't ignore it. You should not avoid it. You shouldn't bypass it. You certainly shouldn't drown it with all layers of media and activity and business. Do you know why? It's not just okay to take time in these seasons to do the appropriate things that God has assigned for you to do, it's actually time itself that God uses to humble and heal and make you fully human. Oh, listen again. Part of humility is to do that which is appropriate in that season or time. And if you don't do that properly, if you don't do it sufficiently, if you don't do it humbly, most often... You come out underdeveloped, misshapen, and all those kinds of emotions and experiences you should have had in that season all come flooding and raging out later anyways in much unhealthier fashion. Oh, you see, these are not just reflections. These are assignments. And they're not only assignments, but I actually think they're directions as well. Directions. Look at verse 6. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. These are directions for discernment. Discernment. All right, so with your business or career, with that relationship, with your children, you ought to discern the time that you hold on, keep. They're too young. They're too immature. You must shelter. You must protect. Then there comes a time you must let go. You hold on too long, or you let go too early. Sometimes there are some pretty bad consequences to that. And so James chapter 1 comes along and says, if anyone needs wisdom, you see, you need wisdom to discern the appropriate timing to things and how crucial they can be at times. James tells us God gives wisdom to the humble. Those who ask for it, those who seek it from God and from wise people. Here's a second thing we can learn. If God makes everything beautiful in its time, humility. Second is gratitude. Gratitude. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken from it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Oh, how humbling it is to acknowledge I can add or subtract nothing. But also how grateful we can be. How grateful we can be. When we notice in this verse that his work is permanent, perfect, and purposeful. Permanent, permanent. How many things can you bank on will last forever? It's not even diamonds. The grass and the flowers fade, but the word of God abides forever. People's souls abide forever. God, his work lasts. It is permanent. Everything else is so fragile, transient, comes and goes, trendy. We think it's so progressive and new, but really there's nothing new under the sun. We can learn gratitude to the permanence of God's work. Second, perfect, perfect. His timing is perfect for all of our imperfections. Yes, the John Legend song comes ringing loud and clear while I was preparing this. His timing is perfect for all my imperfections. For instance, in verse 2 again, there's a time to be born and a time to die. What a time, what a time for babies to be born. And we celebrate with you. and We pray for you new mothers and fathers out there What a unique season to celebrate birth. I assure you, that was not one second too early or too late. There's perfection to his timing. But again, at the other bookend of Life, there is a perfection to the timing of God. You know, I was going back over these verses, turned to my old notes. The last time I preached on this was actually 2013. And right there... In one of my notes, I recorded there was a random Monday where Elizabeth was homesick. I don't know if she was really sick because I took her to the mall to get candy. We hung out, came home and played Monopoly. And I was writing there how deliriously happy I am with my youngest daughter because she laughs at all the things I say. She hugs and adores me and kisses me. And we had a friend come over and she just acted so unembarrassed in front of her friend to be with her dad. There was a time to laugh, a time to dance. Now she's got a friend over as soon as I even approach her room. Dad, please get out. A time to mourn. The times have changed. You know, this week my family, of course, is going to say goodbye. I know you guys must think, oh, how sensitive and pathetic you are. She's only going to a school 20, 30 miles away. But no, it's a psychological, emotional kind of distance here. Taylor will be living on campus soon. What do I have to learn? What do I get this this wild, really undisciplined heart? What can govern and settle this heart? Gratitude for the perfection to God's times. Last but not least, purposeful. Yeah, I, I really don't want, I do not want this week to happen. I do not want certain things in the future to happen with my daughters. And as unpleasant as that may be, and for many of you, much, much harder occasions where it's downright painful, seems so wasteful, or you're dealing with a lot of guilt and regret these days for all the things you could have done better in the past, I want to show you that this author tells us, but all of time, though. All of it is purposeful in the hands of God. So that people might fear before him. That fear is the most intimate, affectionate, reverent type of trust between a father and a daughter, a father and a son whom you love and whom you are so loved by. And no matter what seasons or times you and I keep going through, and we feel like they're setbacks at times. Sometimes we feel like this is way too prolonged or too hard. I may be at a complete loss, but I can be grateful to. I can trust someone who is never, never at a loss. See, yeah, I know we don't want any part of the negative times. I know we don't want any share of those harder seasons of life. But we can learn gratitude and get to know God so much better. You know, in that incredible work entitled The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, here's what he observes. It's taken straight from Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. But Lewis, of course, puts it so eloquently. Mortals misunderstand and say of some temporal suffering. No future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven... Once attained, we'll work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Third, last but not least, joyful good. Humility, gratitude, because God makes everything beautiful in his time, joyful good. Now, I didn't know what words to come up with. I'm sorry, this is just so clumsy, but I just took two words literally from verse 12. Look at what verse 12 says. I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. There is nothing better than to enjoy life and to do good as long as you have life. Also, there is nothing better for Christians and the church in her witness to a world dying for joy. Uh, An author by the name of Rebecca McLaughlin, she tackles 12 questions, 12 questions that are raised against the world's largest religion in a book entitled Confronting Christianity. And her first chapter answers the question, aren't we all better off without religion? Now that being the first question is very telling of where all the resistance is coming from. It's very telling of where most of our non-believing Western friends are at. Aren't we just better off? if we just get rid of religion? You might have heard it last week mentioned, no longer is the objection of our friends here in Orange County in L.A., is Christianity so convincing or plausible? No, they're asking, is Christianity desirable? I'm not saying airtight arguments can't help the case of defending and advancing the faith of of Jesus Christ but more than airtight arguments there needs to be attractiveness and here's how McLaughlin goes about answering that first question aren't we better off without religion she says volunteering caring for one another in loving community brings far more satisfaction than amassing wealth or accomplishments at work go Google this do your own research and studies It's not close. Do you really want to enjoy life? Do you want to be joyful in life? Doesn't come from money. Doesn't come from houses. Doesn't come from pride of your accomplishments. It comes from loving and giving yourself to one another. I mean, this is one of the richest treasures that the church provides. And today at 5 p.m., you can start signing up for our small groups. And this is freely given by God so that human beings who believe and follow after Him can be joyful in life. McLaughlin goes on and says practicing gratitude, self control, perseverance, perseverance, commitment, sticking to one thing, sticking to one group, sticking to one locale, sticking to one person, and forgiveness. Bring about remarkable mental and physical benefits. Now, your pastor certainly is not up here saying, well, you see, this is obviously a litmus test that proves its truthfulness. Of course not. This proves nothing about its veracity. But it does tell you, it does tell you how there are real benefits in play when we actually believe and obey what our Lord Jesus has taught. An atheist social, social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt in a book entitled Moral Psychology and the Misunderstanding of Religion, quote, surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer lived, and more generous to charity and to each other than our secular people. They give more of their time to and of their blood. Happier, healthier, live longer, and do more good. Sounds just like Ecclesiastes. I mean, after all, who should have more joy and do more good than Christians? I mean, after all, who should soothe and calm and radiate? I'm not talking about fake it till you make it. I'm not talking about an artificial just smile and pretend everything is okay. But I'm talking about an impervious, supernatural, otherworldly type of joy that emanates from people called Christians. And because of that joy, they just continue and persevere to do good. Who else should have and do this more? I mean, because aren't Christians the people who believe in scriptures and sing lyrics like he's got the whole world in his hand"? My friend, can you take time today to reflect with this author, has there been any season, any moment in time, no matter how positive or negative it has been, that God has not been there for you, that God has not been all out with you? Do you think you've ever cried or confessed your sins in vain? Do you think you've ever gone about doing something to build someone, uh, uh, someone else up in love that that is wasted? No, Christian people. It's the last colony left. It's the last group left that has grounds for real hope and joy. Because God makes everything Beautiful. Beautiful. I know it's not beautiful right now. I know you cannot imagine how beauty can come from this right now. But if this be the word of God, and the spirit of God comes and stirs your heart and your conscience right here, you can have joy. (laughs) Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Also, everyone should eat and drink. Eat and drink. Take pleasure. Calvin, not Calvin and Hobbes, John Calvin. says, you ever wonder why God didn't just give us one kind of food, one staple of food to provide for our basic nutrition, but he gave us a variety of all different kinds of foods? It wasn't just so that you would be sustained and be able to survive, it's so that you would enjoy if you can try something new, if you can diversify your diet and then go and share it hospitably joyfully, generously, lavishly. There might be no better witness in this day and time. Joyful good. You know, in Revelation, we're all going to end up just eating, feasting, and drinking together to the glory of God forever. Look again at verse 13. And take pleasure in all his what? Work. Work. Christian people can have joy in eating and drinking, and you can actually have joy in your work, your work. I miss all of you again meeting you in person. But it puts a smile on my face with the team of people who are here. And for a lot of people, their job may be, I set up signs, I set up the mics, I set up the stage, I set up and do this. That's a job description. That's good, and I thank you, and people thank you. Other people can come along and say, I help people get ready to worship God. Oh, now, that's a church job description now, isn't it? And again, I so thank you, and people thank you. But do you know that there's a joy that comes rushing and flooding back? Well, you don't need so many people to thank you, but you're thanking God. Because you begin to realize, I worship God. I get to enjoy God by serving his people in this one little way. Thank you, God, you gave me this one way that I can build up and love on and serve your very people And I'm worshiping you as I do that. Do you know that's not a job description? You know that's way beyond a church job description? That's a calling. And it's God's gift. When you can see how it's connected to your maker and redeemer. And how he has called you. Can you do this for me? Joy. In our eating and drinking. Joy. Even in our work. This is why in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it reads, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Nothing better. Nothing better than to be about joyful good. Nothing better for a world to sense and see and be attracted to. And where does it come from? You can't get it apart from God. You will never find this apart from God. It's a gift. And so, in that magnificent series of books and movies, confess I never really read all the books. I love the movies, Lord of the Rings. You have the classic anti hero, Frodo, small. Short, weak, scared, tempted, wants to quit, exhausted, and at one point becomes so overwhelmed. Tolkien, the author, describes it this way. He loses the ability to enjoy the world in order for others to have and keep the world. This anti-hero, he loses the ability to have joy so that others might have joy in this world. You do know where Tolkien got this character from, from the person of Jesus Christ, God's own son who broke into our world, who lost his home, who left heaven to bust open open its doors for you and for me. Jesus lost all joy so that you might have and keep and be filled with such joy that can radiate this world into the next. For many Christian people in the majority world today, in parts of the majority world today, their joy literally can only come from Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again. And he promises promises us this in John 16. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I have said these things to you, That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. In this world you will have sorrow. You will have troubles. You will be beset. You might be beaten down. But in Jesus, receive him. Heaven comes down in him, he will unleash joy. And you can go about doing good all the days of your life. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is in vain. Nothing is meaningless. Were it not for God who sent Jesus to give up his life, his love, and his joy for you. Pray with me at this point. Father in heaven, we thank you for the riches and the power of your word, even in Ecclesiastes. And Lord, I pray for friends at homes or at work or wherever they may be listening in right now. Lord, just bring them to Jesus. Oh, God, bring them to Jesus. For we need his joy. We need him who has overcome the world. May it be so. Thank you, Jesus, as we come to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.